There is a simple equation. A cow has to eat roughly 100 grams of protein to grow 5 grams of protein, right? So, you know, engineering terms, a cow is a 5% efficient machine, right? If you ask anybody on the planet, any engineer on the planet, if they are willing to use a 5% efficient machine in their process, the answer is obviously no, right? Alberto here, and this is The Pitch. The Pitch is a weekly show where I interview founders from early-stage startups to analyze their businesses. We'll cover their problem, solution, potential market size, team, and more. So join me as we dig deeper in their ventures and discuss their growth potential. Today's guest is Tilev Travnik, the co-founder and CEO of Juicy Marbles. He's a trained food scientist with 15 years experience in the IT industry. Juicy Marbles was part of YC and raised 4.5 million in seed funding. But that's enough for me. Let's get on with the episode. Hi, Kevin. Uh, welcome on the pod. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. So to kick us off, uh, could you tell me about what was the haha moment when you decided that it was time to build uh, Juicy Marbles? I would say there wasn't just one aha moment. There were several of them. I guess each of the co-founders had their own aha moments, but I can go through mine and some of them are then shared with others. So the first aha moment for me was... After I uh, worked in the IT industry for quite some time, 12, 13 years, after graduating food science and technology, I, I suddenly realized that there's now food startups that work in the same way that software startups used to work. So use the same kind of capital and approach problems with the same kind of methodologies. And I thought that was interesting. So that was one aha moment. The other one was when I switched to a plant-based diet. Myself, uh, I always, uh, I mean, I, I started realizing that the offering for protein choices are limited. Obviously, there's traditional protein sources, uh, which you can use, but they don't offer the, let's say, fun and inclusive and delightful experience of actual meat. Okay. And so uh, if you could explain a bit uh, then in, the, in detail, like what is Juicy Marbles and uh, uh, what's the, the solution that brings to this problem of like not really tasty alternatives and high quality? Sure, sure. So Juicy Marbles is world's first plant-based whole cut uh, of meat. So uh, there's other meat replacement companies and products out there beyond meat and impossible being the, the two kind of industry, you know, poster charts. But uh, what they have in common is they focus on minced meat products. So either burgers or sausages and the like. And there is a technological reason for that. And that is that it is actually hard to produce bigger chunks of flesh from protein uh, that comes from plants. So, you know, an animal grows a big muscle and, you know, we, we harvest that whole muscle in, in plants. You don't have this concept, but you rather get a protein in, let's say, you know, diluted across the plant. And then that, that diluted protein is, is transformed into a, let's say, a protein powder that we actually use as one of our ingredients. So, um, the, the challenge was how to make, how to make a whole cut and potentially even which we managed to do, include some sort of marbling, so some sort of fat inclusions into that lean muscle uh, tissue. And right now, what's your product offering and also how it's going to look in the future? Yeah, so we started uh, We started with, a, uh, we, at that time, we still called it a filet mignon replica, mostly for PR reasons. But uh, now we have two products. One is more of a you know, portion size and one is a bigger size loin, we call it. Uh, and what we 
what we like about those two products is they kind of suggest how to use them. So, you know, the steak product is often used as is, so like a steak on your plate. But the line product, people often cut up in various shapes and sizes and, and use it as a different as different, uh, let's say, for, as, a, as the meat for different dishes. One fun fact about meat, and that's all meat, is that it behaves and delivers a different experience depending on how you cut it. So, you know, a, a steak that's cut along the grain or along the fibers has a different property, sometimes even different taste, than a steak that's cut across the fiber. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what do you think is the kind of... So you nailed, I feel like, the, the look. Like it looks exactly like a steak. How tough is this going to be to replicate the, the taste and, the, and the, yeah, the taste of a real steak? And is that what you're aiming for? Or it's, it's just a, a bit of a different product in, that, in those sense? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting question and something that we often also ask ourselves. So there's a couple of significant differences between our product and a real, let's say, filet mignon or a real steak. Most come from the fact that actual meat are basically little bags of fluid, so muscle cells are a little bag of fluids, which when you cut through such a steak or when you chew through such a steak, you release that fluid from that from, from those little bags, this, those cells. In, in, in our product, you can, we're not making little bags. We're actually making fibers out of solid protein. So our, 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 our product currently, when some people describe it as more of a, let's say, pulled beef or pulled pork or a pot or, or a roast or maybe a, a brisket kind of an experience where you actually, in your mouth, feel fiber separating, whereas a true steak is a little bit more on the jelly side, so it's a little bit more like a gel. Do we want to go as close as possible? The answer is yes and no. We started evaluating every cut of meat with some proprietary, let's say, measurement and descriptors, which we think contribute to the overall meat experience. I I can give you a simple example. So, for example, if you have a really, well, certain types of steaks, when you make them, you have to be careful not to chew on them for too long once you put a a piece in your mouth. Because the first few chews are really juicy, but then the whole thing becomes too dry and sometimes it's even on the limit of being hard to swallow. So, like, that profile of how something is pleasure pleasant to eat throughout the throughout the process is one such parameter that we are actually comparing our product to the real thing so i don't think an exact replica is something that will commercially be the most successful product but it's rather a product that has the best possible experience that will win Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I tried it, and I have to say, it tasted different from a steak, but it was still a great experience. So it it uh, it makes sense. It's like a different taste, but I think that replicating meat, yeah, it's it's a too obvious of a move, and maybe like it's just a different taste, but it's still a good taste, and it fulfills the same need. It doesn't need to have the same taste, I guess. So uh, yeah, tried and uh, and can confirm. Talking about target customers, how who, who's your target customer? Uh, both on type, like if you have like a persona, and also if you target direct-to-consumer or you target more restaurants? So on the channels, basically, we what we want to do is kind of have a healthy blend of all different channels and rather focus on like location by location growth. So not, not to go like, you know, Europe-wide, 
in restaurants, but maybe achieve a certain country or city where it is available in multiple channels. That's due to the fact that people apparently talk about food and exchange suggestions and ideas in an offline settings more. So, you know, you, you, you would basically suggest or, or learn about new foods while sharing some food with somebody and more on a, on, on a more rare occasion you would find about a new food you know looking for that new food online or something like that so it like food food propagates through word of mouth mostly this is why we want to do a a more local approach when it comes to consumers uh, currently i would say the majority or like a decent half of our customers are actually vegans who and i count myself in that in that group who are basically comfortable with the fact that they did like meat and they still like meat and they like the meat experience but just don't want to use it because of the you know externalities traditional meat production brings with it and uh, yeah that that represents probably the biggest part of our customers the other customers are what sometimes are called flexitarians i would i would maybe even rephrase that and use the new newer term which is reductarian so people who want to actively reduce the amount of meat they are consuming but are not willing to reduce the experience that uh, they get from the meat so they are looking for like you know somewhat same experience but with less actual meat and in terms of consumption occasions do you see it as one dish that someone has once a week as often as you would have like a really high quality steak or do you think that with time it could become something that consumers consume almost replacing meat maybe with other products that are a bit a bit less premium i don't know yeah i mean ideally you know we would be the one company that would be positioned uniquely as the 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 company that uh, provides the most commonly used uh, meat replacement option and we would have a full range of products ranging from premium to you know more more affordable there's also other players in the market there's also other areas of uh, meat replacement such as seafood etc that that uh, you know other players are doing great stuff in but i do feel that I honestly don't believe that meat replacement will be, or the traditional meat will actually be gone anytime soon. I think that we'll will be will will look at an, a transition a transitional period where we start with you know lower tier foods going plant based or alternative protein based, and then I would say the premium segment of you know premium steaks and premium cuts of meat will get there a bit later and i think that in certain cultures and for certain occasions there will always be some sort of you know actual meat present i i cannot imagine uh you know native indigenous people switching to to a plant-based alternative i just i just don't see that but i do see the rest of the planet in a more casual setting do so and how does your business model work? So are you a classic like food producer, you manufacture and, and sell and make a, a, like, a, a profit out of it? Or is it more complex? You do R&D and then uh, are going to sell your licenses or how does it work? It's even more complex. Uh, (laughs) Generally, we are a a simple, a a simple food manufacturer. That's, that's true. And we, we make money by selling our product. That's, that's true. But at, at the same time, we are also developing the technology to make our products and uh, the machinery to make our products and, uh, you know, the, the brand that allows us to do kind of 
build awareness around our products. So we, we try to do everything ourselves except of obviously logistics and, and you know distribution to some extent. So that's why I'm, I'm saying it, it's more complex than just being a, a food manufacturer because literally you can be a food manufacturer that, that just produces, let's say, you know, products for other people using their recipes. And it's, it's a more, let's say, manufacturing scaling operation than it is uh, R&D and, and product operation. But we have all components. So the R&D, the product management, the, the manufacturing and the distribution. And do you think this might change in the future? Do you see like yourself becoming uh, maybe also doing private labels for other companies or mainly working on R&D because maybe that's your strong suit and then you can partner with someone who deals with manufacturing? Yeah, we'll, we'll probably change. I mean, we'll most likely change to or, or not change, but like adapt new business models as we go along. We're not, we're not decided yet. I mean, it, it's a little bit of a, which part will, will be the most, let's say, valuable and the, the, the most appropriate to be, to be capitalizing on. But it, it's something to see in the future. Right now, we, we have no specific plans to do something like that. Talking about the market, how do you size the market and how big do you think it is? Because I believe it's not just plant-based meat, but it's premium plant-based meat, which is a totally new segment, I would say. Yeah, currently it is. It is what we call premium plant-based meat. I would like to be in a position where our volumes are big enough that we would soon be not just premium plant-based meat, but would actually be throughout the plant-based plant-based whole cut category. For reference, in, in actual meat, whole cuts represent about 60% of the market and minced meat product represent about 40% of the market. So we would like to play in this bigger 60% part of the, of the, of the meat market, so to speak. And how do you see the market changing over time? Do you see it like growing a lot or do you think that other alternatives might come to play? Maybe people just not eating meat at all, like kind of, and not even alternatives or cultured meat coming up. And so it's like, you still eat a steak, but it doesn't come from an animal. So it fixes some of the ethical concerns. Yeah, I am sure that cultured meat with all the investment going into that field lately will will come to the market eventually. I think we'll have a longer period of what I call hybrid products that will be a combination between plant-based and cultured, which we already see in Singapore, for example. But there is, yeah, that's from what I see on, on, on the market. To the other part of the question, I honestly, because, you know, there's a few reasons why I see plant-based or other alternative proteins really pick up. One is obviously the ethical and environmental reasons which are put to the front uh, to the front right now. You know, most companies in the space and most investors in the space are emphasizing those those issues. I honestly think that the majority of alternative protein adoption will happen because of economic interests, not because of um, ethical, <laughs> maybe an environmental, yes, but for sure not ethical. Simply because, uh, you know, if, if we reduce the whole process of animal agriculture and think of, let's say, a cow as a machine, you know, there is a simple equation. A cow has to eat roughly 100 grams of protein to grow five grams of protein right so in in you know engineering terms a cow is a five percent efficient machine right 
if you ask anybody on the planet, any engineer on the planet, if they are willing to use a 5% efficient machine in their process, the answer is obviously no, right? So with, with direct transformation of plant protein into animal, into final products without the use of animals, that efficiency goes much, much, much higher. You know, we're talking, you know, same as like, you know, incandescent and LED lights, same kind of you know, leap of efficiency. And, you know, efficiency means lower lower cost. And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of companies would take advantage of that. So now I would like to change a bit the topic and talk about something specific to your industry on the type of product, which is how do you validate traction? How do you know that your product is working or is going to work even before you have it? Because I assume you need, it takes time to develop it uh, before people can touch it. And by then you probably validate it somehow that there was demand for it. Yeah, coming from 12, 13 years of software development and dealing especially with startups within the software space, that was a big question for me too, because uh, as a traditionally educated food scientist, you know, you know all about the procedures of, you know, food safety and, you know, certifications, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the concept of an MVP was a little bit different here. That being said, there's only so much you can do if you're making food with pictures and images and descriptions you know food is basically consumed and judged with tasting the food right it's 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 very hard to, to kind of um, you know sell food with with properties and then we often say that uh, you know our samples are the ultimate due diligence even with investors right so yeah i mean what we actually did is we kind of during yc we kind of set up a Maybe a, I should call it a test program in which obviously you, 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 you try to make the food as safe as possible. I mean, we, first of all, we, we don't use any special ingredients or food that would be, that would require some sort of, you know, special improvement or certification. It's just things that you can buy off the shelf and are recognized as, as, you know, everyday food ingredients. It's the, the processing or the, the manipulation we do with that that's going to be uh, the innovative part. So, you know, after that, you have to ensure like microbiological safety of the product and you're off to the races and you can kind of start first, obviously, uh, offering free samples, but then you can transition into smaller size production runs, which are still produced manually, but, you know, they pass the certification that's required to sell the food. It's actually easier to sell food as you might think. I mean, easier. There's, uh, there, there's not as many hurdles, certification hurdles uh, that you would think, uh, as you would think. So it, it, it was a surprisingly easy process to kind of go the MVP route. And right now, how do you measure traction? What is your like north star? Is it uh, like uh, number of products sold? Is it uh, retention or uh, frequency of, of consumption? What's what's your what's your number? So all, all of all of the above obviously depends a lot on the channel you're selling in. There's there's different metrics for let's say the retail or or direct to consumer, but for sure a, a repeat purchase, repeat buy, something something you know if you if you boil it down. Food is a little bit similar to SaaS, right? So you have the cost of acquisition and then you have the lifetime value of consumer, right? So, you know, how you measure those is a little bit different, but the concept is the same. You basically want to attract a new customer and then sell it to them repeatedly for as long as possible so that you increase the lifetime value. Mm -hmm. And uh, so 
Talking quickly about competitors, so I don't want like the all overview of the competitors in the whole space because it's huge, but do you see competition in the premium and all-cut part or it's still quite empty? So there is competition. There are a few companies. I would say for now, all the startups in the space are trying to solve the same problem with different technological approaches. So we don't have yet a single company that would try to replicate our exact product. We also have some IP around that that kind of hopefully will protect us. Uh, uh, but there's other approaches, right? So there's people doing 3D printing. There's people doing fiber spinning. There's people doing fungi. There's people doing, you know, there's different approaches. And uh, yeah, I'm just, you know, it's such a big market that I'm actually excited to see, excited to see uh, competitors because this just validates that the market is bigger and bigger and bigger and people investors even don't consider you know one new entrant to be a show a showstopper why do you think your team it's it's perfect for tackling this challenge i would say we're now at the stage where answering this question is kind of strange because there's now more than just the founding team there you know and we have specialists that range from manufacturing to you know food safety to you know all all the other aspects that we need to cover i think what makes our team unique is that we are a blend of, we're not, you know, and often, often I get a question, is everybody in the company vegan? And the answer is no. And I think that's the right thing because I think you need a healthy blend of different perspectives to call your product good enough or not good enough. I feel that some of the vegan brands are not as good as they could have been because they are only judged by you know, people who are who are only eating plant-based foods and then their expectation for what the meat experience should be is different. And it doesn't it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't go the extra the extra mile that's needed. What do you think are the major risks ahead? Major risk ahead. So on, on the macro level, I'm not you know, there's been some recent negative PR and, and articles around the plant-based industry that, you know, consider you know, suggesting that it may be a fad. I honestly don't believe so. On the contrary, I, I kind of always give the analogy of how quickly, you know, a horse and a carriage was basically replaced by an internal combustion engine car within 20 years. I think we are here. It's something similar going to happen. I do see the risks of, and, and, and even those risks have materialized for the existing big players in the industry is that they... I think just didn't focus enough on of consumer needs and understanding of what the consumer really wants and needs. And it resulted in, in products that did not achieve the re- repeat buy, repeat purchases that you require as a, as a food brand to survive. So, you know, consumer, quick enough consumer ac- acceptance and adoptance is something that, that I feel is a, a big risk. I also feel that a, the, just the confusion around all the different new sources of proteins and different approaches of making those products is a risk because the consumer might be confused. You know, how is this now GMO, 3D printed, cultured, la la la? Those things have to like settle in and, and they're, they're hard, hard concepts to understand. And for the average consumer, that might not be easy. And there's, uh, yeah, generally, those are the, obviously, there's the, 
danger that a really huge multinational food conglomerate will step into the game with the exact same product that you have and they will just crush you legally. You know, that's always a risk, but, you know, it's not much you can do around that. Perfect. To, to close, uh, so I, I know you, you already raised. Uh, are you, so what's your funding situation and are you looking to raise again soon? Yeah, so right now we are basically getting ready for a Series A fundraise, I would say sometimes early next year. Amazing. Uh, is there something we didn't cover you would like to add or we got them all? No, I'm fine. Thanks for Amazing. having me. Amazing. Thank you. It was a great chat. Thank you very much. It was great chatting with Steven. And I think what they're building is impressive. Using marble stakes, taste and look make them a unique product. And their IP protected technology represents a strong competitive advantage. If I wasn't invested in this space, I would definitely keep an eye on them. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share it with your friends. Also, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn with any feedback or questions. Thank you for listening.